Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Change on the Run podcast, where we discuss common change challenges and ways to address them when you're short of time. I'm your host, Phil Buckley. Today's topic is engaging people who are changing. Ultimately, the people impacted by a change decides its level of success. Their mindsets, actions, and behaviors either support or reject the new ways of working required to unlock its benefits. Either they advocate for and take pride in the change or don't take ownership of it and block adoption. So how do you engage people to enable the changes impacting them so they become committed to securing their success and the outcomes that they provide? My guest today is Dr. Barbara Troutline. Barbara, welcome to the show. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. Welcome, everyone. Barbara has over 30 years of change and transformation experience. She's the best-selling author of Change Intelligence, Use the Power of CQ to Lead Change That Sticks. Barbara holds a PhD, Organizational Psychology, from the University of Michigan, and a bachelor's degree, Psychology and English. Barbara, what has been your experience with engaging people who are changing? Well, Phil, I thought I'd go way back in time and talk about my first day on the job as a change leader. It was back in the 1980s, which those of you who are maybe as old as me or a student of history might know that the Midwest of the United States, where I live and work, was known as the Rust Belt because it was a very difficult economic time. And I was actually working as part of a uh, consulting team with a steel mill that was in bankruptcy. So there I am and I get up and it's a room full of all men and they're all 20 or 30 or 40 years older than me and pretty much to a man they had worked in that steel mill their entire career. So I get up and I talk about how we're going to partner together to transform them to high performance, total quality, self-managed teams. Woohoo! I look in the back of the room, a guy stands up. He stops right to the middle of the room and he says, we're steel workers and we don't listen to girls. So that was my first day attempting to engage people who were changing. And you know, what went through my head was what was going through his head. You know, what was he thinking? What was he feeling? And I really think he was afraid. I think he was afraid because the steel mill was already in bankruptcy. It was the only job most of them knew. It was the only game in town. I had a lot of empathy for him and the targets of the change, right? The people impacted by the change, however... I also knew right from that first day on the job that there was a heck of a lot of fear and intimidation in the change leader standing in front of the room who was me. So that's what got me down my now 30-year path to equip and empower my fellow change leaders so we can all engage others in change with much more confidence and competence and less stress and frustration. It's a great story to tell and a great one to kick us off because we try to engage people and we don't necessarily know their history what they might be afraid of, what their personal circumstances are, which all connect into engagement. From that experience, how did you translate that into how you operate with people that you're trying to engage with now? I think that when you look at what makes people engaged versus disengaged, I think disengaged people don't get it. That's kind of the head part of leading change, right? Disengaged people often don't want it. That's the hard part, (laughs) the hard part. And disengaged people, some of them, they just can't do it. That's the hands part. I talk about that we need to lead change from the heart, the head, and the hands. That's kind of my model. That's what I say change intelligent leaders do. I love the expression that people complain before they commit. And so I, you know, I wish I made that up. And the other expression I love is that 
resistance isn't futile, it's fertile. So when you hear those complaints, how can we reframe that complaint from a complaint to a request? I always say that every complaint is really a request. How can we get it, disentangle that and reframe what looks like resistance from our enemy to our ally? And if we can do that, we can use resistance as a powerful source of information to change ourselves, our own mindsets and behaviors. So therefore, we can more effectively and positively influence others so they get it, they want it, and they can do it. But a lot of the early changes that I did that I think was at the same time period that you had it, there was more of a you're on the bus, off the bus, you know, train analogy where the leader would actually command that that people would follow. So you wouldn't necessarily have the conversation starter of I don't think this is a good idea. How do you manage in those environments? Because they're still around, not as many as then, but they, they still exist. And, you know, you talked about research and, you know, the research and the bottom line benefits of engagement and, and that sort of thing. Well, I uh, have a CQ assessment, you know, that you can take to diagnose and develop your change leader style. And there's over 15,000 people around the world in the database now. And so what the data shows is very interesting. It shows that there are differences, consistent differences in change leader style in different levels of the organization. So perhaps not surprisingly, when we talk about leading from the heart, the head and the hands, the folks at the top, the senior ranks who are, who are you know, leading these changes, advocating for these changes, you know, trying to drive these changes in the organization, just based on what I said, Phil, do you think that most folks at the top would lead from the head, the vision, mission, strategy, the heart, the people, or the the hands, the process? Just what would yeah, spitball yeah, it for me. Yeah, yeah that. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, right? You know, and it's probably kind of self-evident because that's their job. Their yeah. job is to steer the organizations towards a brighter tomorrow. So they get it. They see what's happening in the competitive marketplace. They feel the strongest sense of urgency to change. And they've also been thinking about the changes longer than anybody else. So the constant lament that I hear from people at that level is, why don't they get the gold in what I'm giving them? It's so obvious to me. It's so clear to me. So I think that's the genesis a lot of the, well, they're just going to do it because I told them to do it. But beyond that, they're just so focused on the information, the data. And we know from John Cotter and others, people don't change based on the information you give them. They change based on the insights they derive for themselves. And really? change is an emotional journey. So folks at the front line of the organization, what style do you think that they would you would see the most at those frontline leaders, head, head, or harder hands. What do you think? The, oh, right, right at the front, front, front. At the front line, the frontline leaders, the ones who are right there, boots on the ground with, yeah. with the people. I, I would say more hands because they're more tactical. So that- That's what I thought too. That's what I yes. thought too. However, survey says heart. Really? That's fascinating. Even in steel mills and refineries and automotive plants and heavy industry. And one client pointed out when this data first started emerging, when I started getting results when the assessment was published in 2013 and beyond, one client said to me, you know, I think that that is because, and I've seen this to be true, that it's at the front lines that change really happens. What is change but one person changing their behavior at a time? So it's really those frontline leaders that have to communicate the message, really have to engage, really have to explain, really have to educate, hold people's hands to lead them through the change. And, and that's even, that's one way that the CQ assessment is different from maybe the DISC or the Myers-Briggs one, when, you know, factory foreman will be the technical styles, like the dominant or the conscientious or ISTJ or something. But here, when it comes to leading change, they adapt their leadership style and they primarily, you know, and again, this could be healthcare, high tech, whatever. I see time and time again, a preponderance of leading from the heart 
on the front lines, it's in the middle ranks that we see more hands because I think they're juggling multiple accountabilities. So they're kind of squeezed. They get the edicts from above, which maybe they don't fully understand or buy into. And they get the pushback from below, which maybe they don't have the talking points or, or again, the information, the insight themselves to effectively deal with. So that's a very challenging situation. So anyway, those are some dynamics that I just see time and time again in organizations. It's so fascinating. And it reminds me, I was once doing a change within a manufacturing environment. And as we were we're doing training about what would be changing. And it was more of a cultural initiative. So how we act, how we behave with one another. And when we were asking people to relate back about wh what it meant to them or what scenarios would be relevant about accountability and, and helping someone that might be on another line. An interesting insight we had is that the frontline people got it more clearly than the middle managers or the senior managers. They were so clear right across you know, the, the organization on what we were looking for and how it applied to them. Whereas I found that as we went further and further up, there was more bureaucracy and more, well, what about this? And there was more confusion. Does that resonate with your research? And that's a great boots on the ground, you know, example of in action, what that the research shows. So I love that the research plus the application. And so what I talk about is that I really believe that what the most change intelligent organizations do is that they communicate downward, you know, more in different ways. They really tell the story of the change because change is an emotional journey. So we don't just talk about the what and the why of the change that's going to appeal to the business leaders, but we talk about the who, who is this going to impact? And, you know, and again, what are my fears and what are concerns? What are my hopes? We integrate that. We tell that story and then we help the hands because so often people might get it. People might want it, but they just can't do it because they don't have the training or they got the one-off quick reference guide, but they need more coaching or there's some systems in, you know in place that are barriers communication reward whatever so we really need to communicate in more in different ways down and really tailor the message that one size fits all and then also i think what we need is better feedback up now there has to be the openness and the willingness to you know the vulnerability of the leaders to invite that feedback and yet there needs to be systems and structures in place to help that happen but i think fundamentally leaders leaders on the front line like the ones you talked about leaders in the middle rank i always say what you see depends on where you sit and you know it's easy to to look up and kind of vilify senior leaders but they don't know what they don't know they like marshall goldsmith you know harvard guru he always says that the higher up you go in organizations the harder it is to get any feedback at all let alone real time and actionable feedback so part of it I think it's incumbent upon us, all of us at any level, to have that courage to say what needs to be said. How can we create an environment where we invite people to be accountable? How do you prepare leaders to take unvarnished feedback? Some leaders that I've worked with have said, yes, I want it, and they take it, and it's great, and they say, this is fantastic, you know, we're trusting culture. Others say they want it, they get it, and <laughs> they don't want to hear the feedback they're getting, and they, yeah. they downplay it. How do you prepare a leader so that she or he is in the right mindset to take whatever is coming back as, as being positive input. Well, a couple of things on that, you know, there's some really great research on the neuroscience of change and leadership now that, you know, and how our brain works. And one of the most threatening things to our brain is getting feedback. Not many of us really relish it and it can be, it can be very threatening. Also, I think a lot of us were growing up with the paradigm of leadership that we have to be perfect and we can't be vulnerable, but we know from all the research on psychological safety and mm -hmm. building trust, you know, again, kind of sharing your challenges and creating that environment where we can give each other feedback is is so critical. So I love some of the work and recommendations by the Neuroleadership Institute, for example, right. which it's all about that 
instead of feedback being imposed and given, it's about feedback being solicited. Like you create this kind of coaching across levels, but also peer coaching where you have a strength-based philosophy. Like when, you know, I talk about change intelligence, it's all strengths, like leading from the hard head hands, it's all strengths. It's just that any strength overdone is not so much a strength anymore. And also when we're in that fear threat mode of leading change, because to our brain change equals pain. We know that too, from neuroscience, they put electrodes on people's brains in the same neuroreceptors fire when you introduce your brain to a change is when you feel physical pains. So when we get in that fear threat mode, we literally get dumber. Our oxygen, our glucose gets sucked down, we get dumber. And so we go to our strengths, our well-learned dominant responses, but we don't do them well. When people understand that, that that's what happens and that, you know, we're all trying to do the right thing, but we're either overdoing our strength or we're literally neglecting our blind spot. We're really not seeing options and alternatives and being creative because we're in that kind of, you know, again, fear threat mode. We all kind of understand that about ourselves and each other. It gives us a lot more empathy for each other and a lot more ability to give and receive feedback in a way that's much less defensive because again, it's all strength-based and we all recognize that we're trying to do our best under very difficult circumstances and that we all do need all these different styles. We need to enlighten the head. Any change needs an effective purpose. We need to equip the hands. Any change needs an effective process. We need to engage the people. Any change needs, you know, people to enact it. And so any change leader needs to do all three. It's just, we have different combinations. We have different strengths and opportunities. So I think that that's very much a challenge creating that first of all that environment we have that we do give and receive feedback in this you know kind of constructive empathetic way and then i think also at the individual level that coaching process and i think that's one of the you know interesting things too is to think about building both change capabilities as well as coaching for change capabilities. A lot of organizations I found over the last few years, if they had a, a certain culture that that didn't support empathy and it was more competitive and, you know, you just, you know, survival of the fittest, all, all those sort of commanding things. And then they realize whether it's, you know, market, you know, poor performance or they're losing talent, but they have to change. How do you change the either the environment or the structural levers within an organization so you can almost have a pattern break and, and flip it for you know what used to be success is now failure or not being leading up to your leadership potential. How would you approach that? I like what you said because I think it's both the individual level opportunity to build some new skills and capabilities. And I think it's also at the systems and structural level. So often I think what happens is that, you know, you put a good person against a bad system and the system's going to win every time, right. you know, and I think so often we have the best intentions when we lead change, but again, under the stress of change, those great intentions go right out the window, right? So right. if you can have a simple process like that, because in change, I love Patrick Lecioni said that in a crisis, we all go back to basics. People don't need to be instructed as much as they need to be reminded. Beautiful. So building that enabling foundation, we have that common language and we have some very simple tools like that, that we can use to facilitate the dialogue and really understand what's going on. And, you know, we have that simple common language that really is a simple system and structure we can put in place that will start to transform the culture. Because I think, you know, what is culture? It's our norms and our habits and our routines over time. And if we instill like just, you know, a new norm like that in our meetings and our, that is a way to demonstrate and to start enacting some very different behaviors, which will get us different results. Yeah, I, I find when, when I talk to people that are going through change or they've just gone through, and sometimes you could get varied results. Some people thought it went well, other thought it, it was so-so, other people thought mm -hmm. it was a disaster, whatever. And I think the common element is the role that expectations play. Like if they 
felt it was going to be really tough and it was only marginally tough, then, hey, this was great. Or if they thought it was a cakewalk and it was more difficult than they thought. And if you can manage people's expectations was, was what I distilled from it, then perhaps you can manage how they react to things and hopefully minimize the fight, flight, or freeze, you know, trigger that's in all of us. Have you done any work or do you have any comments just on how do you manage people's expectations when we're dealing with so much uncertainty right now, we really can't predict the future. You know, maybe to say it differently in terms of managing people's expectations, but one thing that leapt to mind when you were talking is that I think it's really fascinating that agility rhymes with stability. I think we need both our sales and we need our anchors. I think that, you know, when so much is changing and unpredictable, you know, getting back to the neuroscience of change, one of the most threatening things to our brain is that lack of sense of certainty. So I think in terms of managing expectations, there might be so much we don't know, but what do we know? Or when are we going to know, have some critical piece of information that will give people comfort? And also what we know probably is many things that aren't changing. What's not changing is my commitment to you as a leader. What's not changing is our commitment to our customers, is our excellent customer service, is our quality of our product. How we deliver those might change, right? You know, how we communicate might. When we can come back together, we don't know might change, right? However, there's, again, so I think in terms of setting expectations um, and making the whole change process less threatening to our brain is just, again, what can we do to give people some sense of stability at the same time that we are building that agility that we're all going to need, you know, even more now and into the future. Over the last year, when people have, have taken stock about, you know, shelter at home and working from home and what they've learned, and it does seem to your point about the, your mission or, or the purpose, and also the ability to make a connection between individuals purpose and the organizations. Any comment on that? Because it seems so strong and, and it makes much sense. If you're doing purposeful work, you're more connected, you feel more confident. Any thoughts that you have on that in terms of engaging people through connecting purpose of individual and company? So that's one thing that I've actually talked a lot about over the last year is that how can we leverage the strengths of hard head or hands when that style is not our own? And one of the ways definitely that we can leverage that head strength of focusing on the purpose and the mission and the values, those are head strengths, flipped up, big picture, systems view, is exactly that, is that it's a great opportunity to reflect, leaders are more reflective or more effective, to reflect about what calls to us our own hero's journey, and maybe even kind of rewrite that story. And to your point about how to, you know, senior leaders show that vulnerability, engage people, you know, again, a lot of times that when we tell a change story, it's like the skeleton of the story. It's the what and the why in the business case. I always say, how can we add the heart to that skeleton? And this is why this is important and meaningful to me. This is why this is our organization's hero's journey. And this is my hero's journey. You know, not spin, but arousing story. And then how can we help people again connect to that? What does it mean to them? What's their place in it? And kind of invent that for themselves or reinvent it for themselves. So again, it's, I think we talk about any crisis has two sides to it. There's the danger and then the, uh, the opportunity. And definitely the opportunity is to learn and grow and to reflect and to maybe kind of, you know, pivot for yourself too. Leaders can make a break a, a transition or change or a, a crisis, as we know. How do you prepare them for the journey they're about to go on, which is an extension of their hero's tale, so that they can actually utilize the head, hands, and heart at appropriate times? That's exactly why I created Change Intelligence, because for the first 20 years of my career, I saw that people who were highly successful in other aspects of their jobs really struggle to lead change. And I think that's because we just assume that 
people get to a certain level and we can because we're all encountering so much change. Back in the day when I started that, you know, if you were going to do a systems implementation, you got excuse from your job for six months. So you can design, you can implement, you can evaluate. Now we're doing that plus a merger and acquisition plus a new product launches. I mean, so many things at once and we're so experienced with change but we're far less experienced with change done right. <laughs> I think a lot of times. So that's what I created this idea of change intelligence because I think we need to be smarter about leading ourselves and others through change. So the first step I always say is starting with ourselves. And so that's why kind of diagnosing our own tendencies to lead from the heart, head, hands, and we're all a combination, obviously, right? You know, mm -hmm. we can all do all those things. And then understanding, again, what are our strengths? What are sometimes our overdone strengths? What are our blind spots or gaps? And kind of giving and receiving some feedback about that. I always say that the best leaders, they have their positive intent match their impact on others. And sometimes we're just not aware of that. One of the styles in my model is the driver style. The driver style is the combination of the head and the hands. They like, they're the opposite of the heart. It's a triangle, picture a triangle. So they like to drive forward with the strongest sense of urgency. However, the impact on others can be feeling like you're driving over me. You're not driving with me or for me, you're driving over me. So their positive intent is to drive towards a brighter tomorrow. And also, not that they don't care about people, they're heartless. I hear time and time again from them, they want to build resilience in people. What builds resilience is positive progress, is seeing progress towards a goal. So however, though, if your impact on others is feeling like you're driving and you don't care about them, then they're not going to want to, you know, drive along with you. They're going to be intimidated. They're not going to feel psychologically safe. So I think that's the first part of leaders preparing themselves is really understanding their style, their strengths, and then also the strengths of their team, right? Those around them so they can build these collaborative change partnerships. So, so that, that's where I always start. You know, again, I think that be the change you want to see, start with ourselves. Is there any sort of watch out you could share with the listeners just when, when we get into this work and we're trying to build engagement at all levels of the organization, are, are there any things that you've tried or you've heard about that it just doesn't work or it's going into territory that won't lead to the best results? Anything or any stories that you could share? So what I would say to that is what is change intelligence? The actual definition is change intelligence is the awareness of our style and the ability to adapt our style to be optimally effective across people and situations, right? So the first part is awareness. And the second part is the ability to adapt. So not change ourselves any more than we can force change on others, but recognize in the moment when I'm dealing with this person who is a different style than mine, who's at a different phase on the change curve, maybe what they need is that they really need that emotional connection. Can I adapt to, again, as Stephen Covey said, building a relationship is like putting a deposit in your emotional piggy bank with somebody that, you know, times are changing and going to need to make a withdrawal. Or maybe what they really need is that they just literally don't get it. They don't get why we're doing this. And maybe I just need to bottom line it with some facts and figures and show them some best practice examples. Or, or maybe again, is that, you know, they're trying really hard, but their efforts are misplaced. Like this legitimately, it's not a will issue. It's a skill issue. I need to step back and I need to do some handholding. So I need to engage the hands. So that is the definition. And, and I would also say that akin to that, as a psychologist, I know that all human behavior can be plotted on a bell curve. All human behavior can be. So I'm a high heart change leader. And us high heart change leaders, we can be on the side of the bell curve that wants 90, 95% people on board and comfortable before we, we move forward. Other styles tend to be okay if they're the only ones on the train before it leaves the station or a very small number, you know. So again, that's not good, bad, or right or wrong. It's an opportunity for some positive dialogue. So you can share, well, I think that we need to go slower, 
because I think that people need more soap time. Project team's been thinking about it forever. We just introduced this to people. They need, it. what looks like resistance is people just haven't had chance to think about how it's gonna impact them, impact the process. And, and then the other folks can say, well, I really think we need to get the train out station sooner than later because the competition's gonna eat our lunch, you know, where we have the small window to introduce this to the marketplace or whatever it is. I would say that that is one of the biggest failure factors, again, starting with ourselves or our teams, is just being that rigid and flexible, not being aware, and then not being able to kind of adapt to give people what they need to get at one and be able to do it. There is no perfect, as you say, in change or in anything, but I find a lot of us have been brought up that there is. So how do you get people to believe that, you know, it is okay to not be perfect? Because there's a lot of pressure. Not only do you not get a lot of feedback, there's a lot of expectations to have all the answers for the leaders. Sometimes people ask me, what's the most important change leadership competency? And I don't say head, hard hands. I say it's empathy and courage. I think that, you know, it's really important to have empathy for ourselves and others. Nobody has the dance card or the instruction manual to how to lead through change, especially in these times with the pandemic and all the crises we've been facing. And I think it's also courage. It's also courage to not just to act, but to show that vulnerability, because we know that we're going to make missteps and, you know, we know fail fast and learn and improve. Do we really get rewarded for that? Or do we get sanctioned for that? And do we really kind of talk about our missteps, especially leaders role modeling that so that others can share theirs as well? Because what the research shows is, you know, we talked about psychological safety. That's the number one factor of high performance teams is psychological safety. And the number one way to build psychological safety is to share our challenges. And so, um, so for leaders to role model that, maybe even start off, you know, their meetings with that, you know, what have we learned? What did we do well? And here's what I didn't do as well, or what I learned. Again, I think that one of the biggest opportunities in any crisis is that opportunity to learn and grow and role model that growth mindset. And that's exactly what the growth mindset is, is that we're not fixed. We can continue to learn and grow and build new skills. And it's like anybody who's tried to ride a bike, you're going to fall off, then you get back on and then you learn. In the spirit of change on the run, if you could only do one thing, let's say you're coming into another client and you've got to get in quickly to help them, help the leaders so that they can engage the, the people because it hasn't gone well with the change and you needed the one thing that you could do that would give you the 80% results and 20% of the time because you're short of time, what would you do in regard to engaging people? Well, perhaps counterintuitively, I would ask and listen. And it's funny because that's the opposite of my change leader style. My change leader style is the champion style, the combination of the heart and the head, actually. And the opposite of that is the hands, which is very go slow, analytical. And so I've learned over the course of my career through some early missteps, I can come in and I can be that cheerleader and that champion and that engager. And I get even more traction if I then kind of stop, ask, and then listen. And so that's kind of the essence of surfacing honor and exploring resistance. Because again, people don't change based on the information I'm going to give them. They're going to change based on the insights they derive for themselves. Good for you to play, not necessarily within your style, but to expand yourself, which I think is, is the best definition of growing um, so that we're just not caught in our, our preferences, which is great. And, and just as we close off the show, I was wondering, is there like a one insight or a watch out or something to remember in, in regard to engaging people? as they go on their journey for change and, and making sense of, of what the, the new future could look like. Any tip or something to remember for listeners? 
Well, I'll just go back to Gandhi. I mean, I love that expression, be the change you wish to see in the world. You know, role model, walk the talk. And again, as Maya Angelou said, people won't remember what you say. They won't remember what you do, but they will remember how you make them feel. And change is an emotional journey. So start with the heart. Relationships get results. And that's my favorite quote of all time. So thank you so much for sharing it. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. And I was just wondering, how can people get in contact with you? Well, thanks for asking. They can just pop right over to my website, changecatalystswithans.com. They can download two free chapters of my book. If they like their learnings more bite-sized, there's a bunch of case studies, research reports. There's other podcasts. There's a keynote. There's a webinar. So there's lots of resources that, you know, people can, people grab if they want to do that. And then also I'm very accessible through LinkedIn. If they want to link in Barbara Troutline, I'm very accessible to people, easy to reach. No, thank you. And I've read your book and I loved it years ago and it, it has reshaped my views on, on how to help people lead change. So thank you so much for that. And thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much. And right back at you with your book. If people haven't checked it out, they absolutely have to. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Barbara. And thanks to you for listening. The Change on the Run book and audiobook are now available. So if you'd like to check them out, please go to changeontherun.com or your favorite bookseller. And until the next time, I wish you all the best as you continue to lead change.